here today for for some for some questions if there are any I've got a couple I think at least two written and um maybe just three little things I wanted to throw out but uh are there any I I will I will get to these all, all these things um including the written questions but maybe to start with uh an oral one there is one Correct me if I'm wrong. I I don't recall you actually describing the the way one might practice with the ringing in the ears as a concentration practice. Did you, or could you? I can. I didn't Del- deliberately. I didn't. Um, the reason I deliberately didn't is because um, the more you pay attention to it the more prominent it becomes and the more sort of sustained it becomes and it's possible it's possible further on down the line that you decide that you don't want it to be prominent and sustained so i feel a little tentative about giving that as an instruction um so there's i guess there's three ways you could relate to it one is it's just one is uh, actually four ways one is this is actually tinnitus and I don't know. Is there a medical solution for tinnitus? What's that? Ignoring it, which is what I was going to say as a Dharma solution. Not so much ignoring it as not getting into a fight with it. So, so one one option is, in in other words, um, that either whether it's tinnitus or it's just the the ringing in the ears, the sound that comes up as the mind uh, gets still and energized for some people, and you decide this isn't something I'm particularly interested in. I don't really want to work with it meditatively. I know that's not what you're asking. I'm just I'm a, I want to give a teaching. Yeah. So um, if that's the case, then the best attitude to it is I'm not really paying it attention, and the most important thing is not to get into an aversive relationship with it. Okay. So what I'm really watching is my aversion in relationship to it. It's just like it's just you know some noise happening it doesn't mean anything about me it doesn't uh if i if i f- you know fight i get to this more when we talk about more about emptiness and dependent arising if i get into an aversive relationship with it i make it unpleasant i will perceive that sound as unpleasant and then that unpleasantness triggers more aversion if i'm not careful and it's perceived as more unpleasant and the whole thing cycles around just because of dependent arising because there was even just a little bit of aversion at the beginning that I wasn't taking care of. Do you, you understand that loop? Okay, it happens with any object of perception. There it is. And I add some, I, I'm in an aversive relation, even a subtly aversive relationship to it. It cannot help but color and shape and form the object of perception, in this case the internal sound, and it colors and shapes and forms it negatively, it becomes more unpleasant. Then usually again, without mindfulness, without care, without skillful relationship in the moment, what's more unpleasant just triggers more aversion and the whole thing loops around. Um, And that can become eventually as maddening as it is for 
people who really don't like their tinnitus, you know. So whether it's organic in origin, let's say that it's actually tinnitus if there is such a thing, um, or whether it's this thing, and I, but if I decide that I'm not really picking it up as an object, then I really need to be, just watch that aversion, okay? In terms of, so that's one thing, if I'm not really interested in it. If I am really interested in it, again, with, with the caution, the reason I didn't put it out was because one might change one's mind and then one's, uh, I explored it for a while, it, it doesn't come up that much anymore. In other words, enough time has gone by, it got prominent, it got, uh, you know, the whole thing, but enough time went by that I was just, I uh, wasn't that interested in it. I didn't get aversive and the whole thing died down. But if one did decide, okay, I'm, uh, I'm at least willing to experiment with it, or um, then basically, basically there are, there are sort of two, bro broadly speaking, there are two ways, okay? So one is with using it as, an, as a kind of concentration object. So that's, that's actually, that would be the, like the base practice. That would be the primary thing that you're paying attention to, but it's a sound. Um, and so when you get distracted, that's what you return to. And, and as with all, if we were working with the breath here, again, it's like, can I get really intimate with it? Can I really um, listen in, in a very fine uh, way? Do I need to play with the delicacy of my listening, the intensity of my listening, all that, all that stuff? It's the same, same kind of thing. What often happens for people who choose that as an object is that as they listen more carefully, or it might be obvi obvious from the beginning, is that it begins to it begins to reveal that it's actually a, a, a um, it's actually a, not so much a spectrum as a collection of frequencies. In other words, there's a lower one, there's a higher one, there's stuff in the middle, and maybe they're slightly different, and you can kind of begin to discern. Kind of, it's almost like listening under a magnifying glass, so to speak. Everything's individual, but it often is the case that listening to the higher pitched one will bring more energy into, into the being. Everyone's individual, but the, find the highest pitch in this, in this kind of chord, if you like. The highest pitch in the chord, that's what you listen to. And that brings more energy and is, is, if you like, a more kind of refined object. So we were talking about the refinement with the jhanas and, and that kind of business. So it's, sim it's similar to that. It's a more refined object, partly because, in a way, a higher pitch sound, in terms of physics, is a more refined object. Um, what can then happen, if you, then you, you tune into that, the higher pitch, the higher pitch, the higher pitch, and probably again the background of the whole thing with the body you see you, you really want to include the body as a bit like um actually a bit like the instructions we gave to julian it's like you want to be as, as you would be if i paid attention to my uh, upper lip here with the breath i still want the body in the background eventually what will happen with the sound or with the body is the body just gets integrated into in this case into the listening and one is listening with the body um some people can start that already because they're familiar with kind of listening with the body. But at some point, just by including the body in the background awareness, this sound is a foreground, the higher pitch is foreground, background awareness, it starts to integrate. And the connection between that and PT in the whole energy body, etc., can go. And what happens, this higher pitch, that I've been paying attention to, it may be that after a little while, that starts to kind of split into a chord. It wasn't or it was 
perceived at one p as one pitch, and then it becomes a chord, and again, you can go to the highest one. So that, that's a method, and for some people, it's really, uh, really helpful for, the, for their samadhi. But again, not to get confused what the primary nimitta is once the jhanic factors arise. Yeah, So it might be that some people listen to that, and they listen to that, and that's the object, and they're really, really steady and very focused and very concentrated, but they're not getting so much into the PT or the sukkha or the whatever. So again, in this way of, of teaching that we're exploring on this retreat, once the PT or sukkha or whatever it is comes up and it's very, uh, you know, it's constant enough, it's strong enough to, to work with, it's definitely pleasant, then that becomes the primary. And then and then the the sound may, you know, it's like how it's a bit like the breath in the energy body. Is there a way that it helps it? Probably is because energy body, you know, in energetic terms, which remember is completely an illusion, or not com com it, it's a relative. It's a relative truth. Um, but in energetic terms, in that language, um, energy body, we're talking about vibrations. So when I say listen to the, uh, when I say pay attention to the energy body, I say um, frequencies, vibration, tone. This is all musical language. A tone is a note. A frequency, a vibration. That's all music. You know. So um, it could be that the, en the energy body and, th and the sound are just, just kind of mutually vibrating like that, and that's what allows the whole thing to, to grow, yeah? In the samadhi direction, if that's what I want. There's another way of using it, which is more, uh, some people use it uh, as a kind of insight practice. So then it becomes less uh, an object of concentration in itself and more a kind of backdrop for uh, that relativizes the arising and passing of other phenomena. In other words, this sound feels like it's going on forever, and it's just there, even though it's a bit like when I talked about that vastness of awareness. In fact, they're very parallel practices. So this sound feels like people who really get into it give it a kind of cosmic significance, like it's the primal, primordial sound of the universe or, or whatever. Um, the the concepts and views wrapped up in that are that it's eternal. It eternally pervades the whole universe forever, maybe even from the before the beginning, before the end of the universe. It's just there. My ability to hear at any time might come and go. That's actually really important. Is it an ultimate truth? I would say absolutely not. But it can be a really important stepping stone in terms of insight. So if I just... I have this sense of it as constant, eternal, et eternal, not in the transcending time sense, but as in lasting forever. And I have that sense of it. Then anything else that comes up, any other sounds, the birds, the heating noise, the voice, any other sensations, the pain in the back, the whatever it is, taste, smells, touches, thoughts, all of that is all s kind of given a constant backdrop with which to kind of um, offset its relative impermanence and the fact that it's just coming and going and this thing just stays. Do you understand? Does this make sense? That uh, So that's very similar to what people get into with the vastness of awareness. And what that does, because you've got something that's constant and you've got a little bit of a, like, I haven't got the view this is an irritating tinnitus sound. I've got the view this is something mystically, mystically, uh, lasting forever, etc. And it pervades the whole universe. So it's less a thing that you're doing that to, more a thing you're, you're kind of, it's a backdrop. 
And that enables one, if it's working well, to let go in relation to the phenomena, sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and thoughts that arise uh, impermanently, arise past, arise past, against the backdrop of that eternal, I use, the etern I use eternal as timeless, in, in, of that forever lasting. Uh, uh, does that make sense? So that would be a way of using it um, as an insight practice. Um, and some people, e either way, can be really, really powerful. The reason I didn't was because of what I said, because some people end up just really getting irritated by it and then kind of feel a little bit stuck with it and don't realize that the, then you actually have to work with the aversion to unstick yourself if you change your mind. Um, but yeah, for a lot of people, very, very profound. The question I would still have, let's say, for an insight meditator doing it that second way that I described is, great, and then how are you going to transcend that? How are you going to go beyond it? No, I'm asking anyone who does that for a long time and gets a lot of fruit out of it. And a long time means probably m months. I, I know people who've been doing that for decades, but I don't know anyone who's gone beyond it. And it's not to say you can't, it's just that the, the, the how becomes a real question. In other words, I might have set up my whole view of practice and goal. Um, through that practice, it comes with sort of views that are conscious and semi-conscious. And through all that, I might have set up my, my idea of what practice is and what the goal of practice is in a way that actually doesn't permit me to go beyond it. So. It's it's just a question. How I'm not saying it's impossible. Of course, it's not impossible, but it would take a whole kind of reworking. There's not in that system. There's nothing that's kind of integratedly kind of. Uh, there's nothing integrated into that view that will that you can rely on that in time will go go beyond that. It's rather you'd have to actually then re-examine the whole view and do something really quite different, probably. Whereas there's other ways of insight practice that I would like to talk about on this retreat that have within them, actually, you, you just keep doing the same thing. Not the same practice, but the same principle. And it just goes beyond, beyond, beyond wherever you are, beyond, beyond, beyond. It'll e eat up everything. And, uh, but that's a, that's a whole other subject. So different possibilities. Yeah? Okay, good. Is that Nick? Yeah. Oh, yes, do thank you. Yeah, th um, an exploration has kind of opened up in the last couple of days um, around the, kind of the spectrum of subtlety to intensity of experience, so experience of, of the energy body and in the energy body and of the nimittas. Um, and I think, you know, I, fe I feel like I've done most of that work within a soul-making context. And I, I, I don't know, within that context, I feel really confident about working with subtle energy, energy body um, experiences, especially when there's image present as well. Um, but I'm I, I kind of realized that I was finding here that because there's this map and there's more like universal things that we're after and kind of trying to tap into or these realms that we're trying to tap into and experience. Um, I began to get really confused about what, what is subtle and what's intense and 
where the subtlety actually has some near enemies. Like, because I had two really strong PT experiences, two sits, and then I had one which I couldn't. It was much, much less intense. It was much, um, yeah, gentler and softer. And I wasn't sure. I, I, there was some doubt around: is this subtle PT, or is it blocked, or is it hindered in some way? Um, and then there's, you know, you, you gave the image of the em, the glowing ember, and then like fanning that a little bit to to get the flames going. Um, and it, you know, it seems obvious that the the ember is the subtle thing, and the flames are the intense thing. But you can also have a really intense feeling of a glowing ember and subtle feeling of flames. And so I, yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about it and I, I might be making too much of it, but it seems like um, quite an important thing to, uh, I don't know, to feel into and to tune into a bit more, to be more confident. What, like does something, um, does a quality, do you need to experience a quality really intensely before you can know it in its subtle aspects? For example, that's one one question. Okay. Yeah. So, let me s give a response and see if it if it addresses what what you're asking, Nick. So, I I think the problem is with the word subtlety, which I've been conscious of in myself when I use it. That actually it's a uh, what's it when a word has at least three meanings, not ambiguous, but try 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 give us anyway. It's a uh, it's confusing. Um, Potentially. So, so we can talk about the intensity of the PT, how strong it feels. And that's an element um, of sassy, right? The I. And that, I said, doesn't matter. It only matters that it's definitely pleasant. Okay. Over the course of, if you really get into jhana practice, you probably experience PT, you know, over that whole range. And basically, the, th the point of the sassy is that I, I don't need to worry about that too much. As long as it's relatively pleasant, I don't need to worry about it. If it's so pleasant that actually I'm really struggling with opening to that and it's kind of almost uncomfortably pleasant, then I may need to work in different ways with that. But generally speaking, I don't need to worry. And over time, and by over time, I mean... So initially with jhana practice, you'll notice... Oh, Depending on how you've, again, depending whether you've gone via the ember and the energy body and fanning it or via the uh, nostrils, g generally you'll just notice there's a, there's a variation from s formal session to formal session of the strength of the PT, of the intensity of the PT, and it doesn't matter. Over much more time, you'll realize that, you know, once you've got second, third jhana, fourth jhana, once all that, you, you actually, you'll realize that there has been gradually, in a, in a kind of not very uniformly linear way, there's been a kind of uh, lessening of the intensity of the PT over time. Yeah? So that's just a, in terms of the strength of it. But then we can also talk about subtlety and intensity of attention. And, uh, you know, the, even I would even separate, do those, those even mean the same thing? In other words, what is it to pay, um, what is it to just, this is quite a hard thing to communicate I if one hasn't really experienced. Well, what is it to turn up the intensity of the attention on something? You know, um, so as you say, you could have a very subtle object, but you're paying attention to it very intensely. Absolutely, yeah, and maybe in different ways. You know, um, 
Does that make sense? And then a third word is that gets mixed in here is refinement. So, um, you know, so as we go through the jhanas, what happens is also, e as I said, each jhana is more refined than the other. So all these, you know, subtlety is not quite the same thing as refinement. Um, subtlety of attention certainly isn't. It's, it's almost like there's three different, at least three different words that could get confused there. Does this? Su subtlety, intensity, and refinement. Um, and then you've got of the attention and of the perceived object. You know, so there's all kinds of, we could be talking about quite a few different things here. Are we talking about the attention? Are we talking about the nimitta? And are we talking about its subtlety, its refinement, or, or, or its intensity, or, or what? Yeah. Maybe subtlety and intensity, in some circumstances, subtlety and intensity will just be flips of each other, yeah. But is this not quite hitting the nail on the head? Well, again, it's like if you come back so often, you know, Okay, come back to the big picture. What am I actually trying to do here? In soul-making practice, um, we're not necessarily after more intensity of an anything, particularly. Um, but what we are after is the development of sensitivity. And so part of what, uh, part of really opening to an image and working well with it might be just, do, do I have right now the art and skill and capacity to notice do I have enough sensitivity to notice the, the different soul resonances and energetic resonances, etc. That's kind of so all you're really doing is part of like, can I tune to it? You know, um, and there's no. It's just, it's just what's there and what does it need and what can I notice? You know, you just with the with the samadhi practice. You know, it's more. Um, what does it need in order to get more into this and to and for it to either feel better? Or for me to just feel like I'm really, really into it now. You understand? So that's why, for example, the I in in sassy, the intensity, it doesn't actually matter. What matters is how I'm relating to it. Yeah. But I've got, if I've got in my mind, I know where I'm going. What I want is to really get into an experience that's pleasant, or to help it move to the next level. But that would only be at certain times. You know, once it's really matured and it's ready to ripen. You understand? So, it, just as a general thing, if you can get used to this sort of like big picture, where where am I going in this practice? What's the sort of? Do you understand what I'm saying? Where, where that that helps me, helps guide me in the moment. Right, at times when you won't have a teacher to ask, like I think about what where is this practice going, in, and that the larger hierarchy view informs the middle hierarchy, which informs this moment. Where I am, what I emphasize in my attention, what I what I attune to, what I amplify through my attunement, etc. Does that make sense? Um, so, like for a beginner, so I'm just you know just getting into working with a PT. Um, the the sort of primary, rather than sort of worrying about is th is this subtle PT or is it hindered or is it blocked in some way? If I ask the question. Um, how do I make this feel better? How do I inc increase the well-being? 
right going in that way rather than worrying about whether whether this is subtle or intense or yeah absolutely um, subtle and intense doesn't matter it's just is okay. it is it um definitely pleasant yeah. and know that it will move across a range is it blocked or hindered is a different question so uh, it's not like oh it's not so strong in this session then i start to wonder am i blocking or hindering it yeah. no um if it's blocked or hindered, you will feel that as a block or a hint. It will feel uncomfortable. It will feel like it's stuck somewhere or it's yeah. kind of the pain in the body or, or something like that. So that's, yeah. I wouldn't worry about okay. that. Yeah. But what you can always ask is, is what you just, can I, can I get into it more? Can I enjoy it more? Which is, doesn't equate to can I make it stronger? Yeah. Can I get into it more? Can I enjoy it more? Might uh, and should include playing with the intensity of the attention, the delicacy of the attention, different modes of attention. Am I opening? Am I going into it? Am I yeah. wrapping myself in it? You know, all, all this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, as a, as a general principle, r it r it's really helpful to think backwards. This is this is oftentimes what's so missing in people's um, dharma practice, or it's it's common for it to be missing, is that one hasn't sort of thought. I wasn't really clear about where I'm, what the kind of aim is of this or that practice, and then how everything acts to support that aim. And we end up actually being quite unsure at any moment what to do. Yeah. Or, unfortunately, because we've heard so-and-so say that and so-and-so say that, we end up emphasizing something that doesn't fit into, or is a c confusing paradigms or whatever, you know. Does that, does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really important. Yeah, Thanks. good. So I, I've got a couple of written ones. Um, <coughs> so, uh, today I had a very strange meditation experience. I was doing formal sitting. Oops. That's still on. I was doing formal sitting. practice outdoors on a chair under my favorite tree. Lovely. Um, I was aiming at exploring the rooms close to the first and second jhana. Let's get this right. Um, I had played with the nada sound. That's that sound that uh, uh, Jason was just talking about. That I played with the nada sound um, slash current and played with connecting it, connecting the sound and my left foot. I had moved on to metta as a springboard and felt the warmth and happiness and well-being of giving metta. There was also, in the, in the scene, there was also the nada and light. So even though she was doing metta, there was still the sound and this light, these secondary nimittas. Um, just uh, going back to the nada sound, it can arise for people as a, as a kind of secondary nimitta, an indication that their practice is deepening so in terms of samadhi. In blah, 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 um, no, I don't like experience. And I was working and playing with expanding enjoying and enjoying that too. Then I sensed as though something was moving under my right foot. I had heavy trekking boots on. This felt very surprising and strange and caught my attention. After a short while, about five or ten seconds, it seemed, I'm not sure, that subsided, and instead I felt something trying to push my left foot up from the ground as if it were in the way. I experienced this as very strange. First, I wondered if the hard wind might be moving a branch on which maybe my foot was resting. 
the sensation continued and I opened my eyes and saw my left foot almost rhythmically in pace with the sensation from my foot. So uh, I lifted my foot and boot, but there was nothing. No branch that could have been moved by the wind, no animal, no hole in the ground, only small, small pieces of branches, leaves, and soil and mud. I perceived this as very strange. I put my foot back and went back to my intended practice, meditating in the playground of foothills of the first jhana. To my surprise, the sensation of something trying to lift my left boot reappeared soon. This was scary. Was an animal trying to break into my boot or wanting to get it out of its way? Question mark. Again, I opened my eyes, lifted my boot, and looked carefully. I even poked around with a stick. Nothing. I'm really puzzled. Can you help me understand what might, what might have been going on? I would really appreciate that. Okie doke. So, um, I don't think this is that common. Well, well, I can say that I experienced something like that. Um, in, in certain meditative states, maybe less in, in the deeper jhanas, but certainly in the around the first, that sort of territory as you describe the rooms, the foothills around there. Um, the, the energy, the PT is opening the body. And one of the ways it opens the body for me is, is my heels come off the ground. And uh, it, it's really not a big deal. So they just slowly come up off the ground. It's more, and, and you know, I mentioned this thing about the head tilting back. So it's, it's uh, I, I don't know. Does anyone else have anyone else? Do you? No. Okay. So maybe it's just me and you, but that's I'm 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 okay with that. Um, it doesn't bother me at all. I I'm experiencing. It, I'm pretty sure it's just a movement, an ex an expansion of the PT, actually expanding the physical body, much the same way that the head tilting slightly back is. Um, it it disappears and as I go as the samadhi gets deeper beyond the, the first jhana territory and. Um, and even in the first genre, it tends to sort of quieten down, I think. And uh, so that's how I perceive it. I guess, I guess it could move the other way. I'm, uh, you, know, it, you know, the feet could go to the side or up, at, you know, the toes go up or whatever. But it's really just an energetic, you know, a, an energetic phenomenon. It's not, uh, not at all weird, nothing at all to worry about, you know. I suppose probably if I look back very, very low down the list of my oh, maybe I should have done something slightly differently. I would say, oh, maybe I should have tried to keep more still. But it's so, it's so not an issue for me. So that's how, does that, how does that sound? Yeah. Um, and just a couple of other things, and then this is for everyone. Um, when you've got a lot of secondary nimitters and things going on, again, really make sure what the primary one is. Yeah. And then these are all secondary. And to the degree that I can mix them in, that it really feels like they're supportive rather than kind of pulling the attention in different directions. That, that's good. Um, and yeah, you know, we can do all kinds of things with bod with our sense of body anatomy. So what did it, you started with? Um, connecting the, the nada sound, connecting it with my left foot. Um, yeah, you can do all kinds of things like that. Again, th the movement of where we're going is such that uh, at some point in the jhanas, for some people, 
very quite early on, the whole body kind of the whole body shape kind of dissolves from consciousness. So, I guess in a way you want to just make we want to make sure that we're just not perpetuating that beyond where it's useful. You know, um, does that make sense? Yeah. So these these are just things things to check. But yeah, I think really nothing to worry about and, and very normal. If that, yeah, good. Before I forget, my interviews again will we'll move to seven o'clock, so that's an hour earlier, whatever your time is. Um, please, please come an hour earlier. Yeah. Okay, we'll. Okay, we'll probably. We probably will finish in the next half hour, but if we don't, then um, how should we do that? Can you? Yeah. So <coughs> Yeah, just have a brief word when we finish and decide decide between the two of you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, great. Um okay, got another note here if there's nothing else right now. Um uh, working with pleasure, joy, love, etc. brings up a lot of guilt and a little sadness and, e and even pain. Um, am I allowed to be happy and live my life joyfully if someone is suffering? Does my happiness cause suffering in someone else? I can sense the pity, the joy, etc. underneath something that feels like holding back and guilt. I want the joy and happiness so badly, but I also feel very sad that other people suffer and maybe even suffer because of me and don't allow themselves to live their life or don't have the conditions to do so, race, social status, etc. I feel I need to suffer joyfully with them Oh, sorry, don't allow, I'm not sure where the joyfully goes. Don't allow themselves to live their life joyfully. Maybe this is not science, I'm not sure. Don't allow themselves to live their life joyfully. Perhaps it goes there. Um, or, or don't have the conditions to do so, race or social status, etc. I feel I need to suffer with them to show some allegiance and solidarity. Focusing on that guilt and sadness, etc., takes me away from the PT again a habit that is there for too long now. Not focusing on it seems as no one would hold that pain and it feels as if the pain wants to be held. Okay, yeah, so this is quite important. Um, so it's actually quite common is partly what I want to say. So this kind of thing I, I have heard heard a lot or rel relatively quite a lot from students over the years. Um, does my happiness cause suffering in someone else? Well, it might, but it, but, um, it might in two ways. So uh, you might be, you know, if obviously if you uh, don't, if you um, talk unkindly to someone, then, then uh, 
well, it's not your happiness, but your, your happiness in jhana doesn't cause suffering to someone else. They might, and maybe people experience, I want to go away on retreat for this long, and my family or friends are saying, that's, you know, I'll be, I'll really miss you, it'll be difficult without you, etc. Um, hard, tricky, you know, technically speaking, it doesn't cause the suffering that alone, you know, or if I say I really want to do this, X or Y is really important to me, um, I need to devote myself to this project and therefore I can't have time for, for this or that person right now. Um, does that decision cause their suffering or is, if they're suffering over it, is their suffering then dependent on a lot of conditions, a lot of conditions, partly um, what their psychological propensity is, what their background is, what the agreement in our relationship is, um, other, other conditions that they might, the way they're relating to their suffering, you know, so it's, this is quite important, this word cause, and, um, you know, sometimes it's much more helpful to think about the, 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 the coming together of conditions that gives rise to suffering, or the coming together of conditions that gives rise to happiness or whatever, and so what happens is we get very easily, we say, a person says, you, you made me suffer. And now in some instances, that's actually a really healthy view. If I, if I rob someone or um, I'm, I'm inappropriately angry at them or whatever, yeah, maybe I'll punch them or whatever. Yeah, maybe, definitely. It's, it's a, there's a, we can think very helpfully about a one-to-one -one causal relationship. But, it, but in many situations, what's actually happening is a person is suffering and that suffering that they're experiencing this moment has all kinds of conditions, often over many years, of wha what's been cultivated psychological habit or what's been cultivated um, in their history or different or, or in your the agreements of your relationship, etc. And or or a, or a non-clarity about relationships or a non the absence of a conversation about needs and supporting each other to have different needs, etc. So I don't know exactly what the what the issue, what the uh, example is here, but I would caution. I would caution about that, about one's own happiness causing suffering. And yes, if I choose X, it may mean, or there's certain things in life that if I choose them, it, it means it effectively means I cannot choose Y, or I have to postpone Y. There, are there, are, and and we really, really need to understand this. And sometimes you get it in. Uh, or if we amplify the whole question to an ethical question, you know. Um, so even this thing about flying, a lot of people have heard me, you know, go on and on and on about that we fly too easily these days and with the carbon emissions. But maybe someone is making an ethical choice between X and Y, and they're weighing up, or they're trying to weigh up for themselves, what would... Uh, what's the most ethical, virtuous thing to do? But in making this choice, I can't do this. So either I go and whatever it is, you know, my grandmother is dying and she needs a nurse and wh whatever, and I'm, I've got the time and I'm happy and we have a good relationship. I go, if I go, I can't not fly. If I not fly, I can't go. Just to, whatever. But there's a, there's there's a million examples. Every day, little examples, and through our life, lots of big examples. You cannot avoid, we cannot as human beings, avoid those kinds of choices. 
and with the best conscience and best kind of sensitivity and listening that we can muster, we have to choose. But we will always be choosing, in some ways, what we could call a moral shortcoming, an ethical shortcoming. And some kind of suffering will, may come out of that. So this is just part of what it means to be a human being. And we have to recognize this, acknowledge it, open, open to it, and, and deal with it. Someone somewhere is going to get disappointed at some point with, with our choices. And, and, but the question is, what's navigating me and how am I relating to that? So that's a whole, that's a whole you know, question. Um, but there's a lot in this note. You know, uh, I <coughs> Let's say I, uh, I, have my, I, I devote my life to serving others, to alleviating suffering. Um, in the world, I still have to make um, I still have to make particular choices within that. I cannot possibly address the whole of the suffering in the whole the whole world. So I, maybe I maybe I work in human rights, or maybe I work in racial injustice, wh whatever it is. You know, um, in doing that again, I'm I in order to give my energy to that, I'm neglecting something else. Um, and let's say I choose one, I mean, I have to be conscious of this. I cannot possibly help everyone's suffering at the same time. Um, but even then, let's say I've chosen something, I'm aware of this, okay, I have, to, I have to choose, and that's at the cost of something else, of not doing something else. I still have to, I'm gonna, I, give, I give all my dedication, to, you know, I give, I, it's my job, whatever, but even my job, half of my money I give back into that organization. I just live on the bare, bare minimum. I'm still going to need to sleep and eat and rest. And in a way, what we're doing, uh, get nourished, you know, uh, in a w rested and nourished, in a way, what we're doing with jhana practice, particularly, is really um, taking the time on a retreat like this to develop really deep sources of, of rest and, and nourishment. Um, so that, and I've mentioned this a few times, but not, not so sort of directly, so that we can move out into the world if we want to and be that much more resourced. One can stay with this service work in hard conditions, in uh, uh, conditions that are not in themselves very supportive or very nourishing, that might be quite difficult. One can stay steady with the flack and the eight worldly conditions, praise, blame, etc. That, that, that are there. One can keep doing that and, and stay, one has those resources accessible to one. So if you, if you didn't and you say, I'm, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and help, I'm going to go somewhere and help in a refugee camp or whatever, and I decide to do it without sleeping and eating, how long is it, how sustainable is it going to be? So it's, it's similar to that. If we want to really um, kind of uh, make our make the, our capacity and the possibility of our service very stable, very f uh, far-reaching. It's like we can stay steady. Have, we have the capacity. We can keep um, showing up. We have the energy. We have the flexibility. We have the, the bigness of heart that can be close, close to you know, really difficult dukkha. And something in the heart has grown large. And partly it grows large through jhana practice, um, partly. Um, so all that, you know, there's still that, that kind of question um, to kind of, again, understand what are we doing? What's the context of what we're doing here? Um, 
there, this is, this, again, I, say, I don't know how often, but, but it, is, it is really quite common that I have heard this, this kind of question quite a lot over, over the years. Oftentimes it's just asking for, a, for more, a more thorough and careful, loving psychological inquiry into what's going on, what's going on there for oneself. Um, because it might be we've been educated in a certain way to believe certain things that it's not, as I said, l around the first and second jhana, a lot, a lot of this comes up. Is it okay to experience this much pleasure? But also, is it okay, just this, is it okay to feel this happy when other people are not? So this is very, very common. Um, and yeah, there might be all kinds of kind of uh, views that have been implanted in there socially, culturally, from the family, whatever. Um, just in terms of the last thing in the note, I think it's quite important, you know, um, focus, so there's already a recognition in this note, there's already a recognition, focusing on that guilt and sadness, etc., takes me away from the PT again, and the person who's written this has written, it's a habit that's been there for too long now, so there's already a recognition, and there's something else going on here. Um, that needs needs some investigation. Not focusing on it, not focusing on the sadness and and the suffering in the world seems as if no one would hold that pain, and it feels as if the pain wants to be held. So again, if we're talking about world suffering or social injustice, I I think I don't know, but you know, I think we need to be clear that I'm not the only person in the world caring for this issue, and sometimes. Sometimes the mind just gets squeezed into sort of semi-conscious beliefs that uh, obviously don't make sense. There are other people working on this. I can afford to take a, a rest for a few weeks to do a retreat, or I can afford to sit for half an hour in the morning or two hours a day or whatever. It's not really going to uh, mean that that suffering is not attended to or goes unheld in the world. If it's, for instance, there's one person that I know in my life and it really seems like they're isolated and they have no one but me um, to, to, you know, to have a sense of holding with, I think you know, that needs a larger conversation and a larger look at the situation and their situation and, and our relationship, etc., and what can be brought in there because uh, that's also maybe, it's obviously not, that helpful for them, and it may not be that helpful for me. So, but again, I don't know the details here, and the person hasn't signed it. But I hope that that's uh, at least has something to this kind of thing. It's very, very common. So I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad of the know. It's really common, especially around this territory with the PT and the sukha. Um, given, I think some some of how we've been educated in our culture. Okay. I. I wanted to just throw th a few things out there, and then we'll see if there are any more. Well, are, there, are there any more questions? Live? Is what? Yeah. Please. Yeah, please, with, with the mic. Yeah, thanks. <coughs> I started to... Can you hear me? You need to hold it ri right near your mouth. Yeah? Yeah, I that's guess good. So. yeah. I started to practice um the walking around um walking around jarnery thing. And um and, and it was it was really lovely. I was really good. really pleased that it opened up and it was very beautiful. And um and it got into a space where it was kind of like 
I've had before when I've done metta and also in soul-making practices where, where it feels like everything has that quality where I'm walking around the space like that. Um, and I was just wondering, one, is, is, that what, is that what it's supposed to be like? And two, I was also wondering, like, um, I guess it's like it, it feels like, you know, focusing on that limiter and then sassying it up, that kind of happens. Um, I and like I wondered, can, can you do that with any object that is a kind of like an open-hearted well-being kind of object? Because I've done it with metal. I mean, I haven't done a yen and so on making practice, but I've, ne- I've never practiced things like Brahma Viharas or anything else. So let's do the first question first. First question first. So um, walking around and with this... Um, primary nimitta quality goes very well and then you notice that basically everything l- is is perceived almost as that nimitta or as if it's a manifestation yeah very normal um very glad that it happened it's extremely important extremely important and i'll come back to it later but basically it's the dependent arising of perception and uh and it has everything to do with the emptiness if i experience this Let's say, let's say I experience. Um, we could choose any any quality. But let's say I, I experience it with something like meta. Let's say I experience the the. You know, first I think, oh, meta is from me, and I do it, and I sort of you know crank it round and round. Then at a certain point, it begins to come out of me to another person or all beings. And then I begin to experience another sense where uh, the universe is meta or the universe is made of meta, or everything shines that forth, or that's its real substance, or whatever. If I experience that, I don't know, three times or five times, it will be nice, you know, it will be a nice experience. If I experience it, I don't know, 500 times, and I'm really going back and forth between that perception of the world and our usual perception of the world in Western culture, which is, of course the world is not love of course of course this glass is not love it's made of uh, whatever the chemical composition of glass is and then there's the water and that's the reality and of course a being is made up of their molecules and that they're not love or a form of love or a spark of love but if i really start going in and out and experiencing a lot a lot a lot the very going in and out of it starts to relativize the in or, or dislodge this entrenched view about that's really reality and this is just a nice experience that I'm having occasionally. And really start to, A, wonder, well, which is real? Okay. Some people then go to, okay, the love is the real one. Yeah. Um, but again, th- the question is, okay, it's really, really good to live there and hang out there and even have that view, perhaps for a long time. But at some point, I'm going to want to even go beyond that and realize something about the emptiness of perception, the dependent arising of perception. So we'll get more and more into that. I may even speak about it again tomorrow, but as you get more into the later jhanas, this becomes really, really an important uh, important, important um, element, I would say, I would say, of uh, what is significant in jhana practice. Again, we're back to this question, of what's actually significant, what's less significant? And this, for me, turns out to be extremely significant. Um, and beautiful and, and lovely, yeah. So is that enough for now? 
Yeah, and it's a theme that we'll come back to at, at least once, I think. There was just a second question. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> so can I can I sassy up any quality? Is the question. Um, well, there may be ones that I could, but I'm not going to enjoy it. So the E at the end, like hatred, well, actually hatred for some people can be enjoyable to a certain degree for some time. Um, but there's probably one's self-hatred. It's probably not something I can get into and really enjoy. So the E at the end won't be possible, for example. But in terms of skillful qualities, what the Buddha would call kusala, skillful qualities, wholesome qualities, um, I want to say, yeah, pro probably. Probably. One of the things that can happen in soul-making practice is different kinds of spaces open up and then one can absorb into them m more or less. And there's just an infinite amount. So my initial response is, yeah, yeah, probably. But um, in a way, on this retreat, we're kind of, again, what's the primary nimitta? What's the pri primary thing that we're doing that with? So, okay. Good. Okay. Um, let me just, there was a, a few little things I wanted to just throw out. Um, I think two of them are, well, they all refer to things I've said before, but maybe just say them slightly differently and they may, they may help, help them to land a bit, a bit better. Um, one is, with the second jhana, I actually can't remember if I said this when we talked about the second jhana, so with the sukkha, that's the primary nimitta of the second jhana, we really want uh, eventually to experience that whole range of sukkha, really the whole range. So it can get very, very sort of ecstatically happy, bubbly, laughing, etc. On one, on one extreme. And on the other extreme, it can get very, very serene, very, uh, it's nowhere near laughter, there's not much bubbles in it, etc. And everything in between. And I said maybe even like with love, without love, that's a bit secondary. But, um, but we want to really know that whole range, that whole territory. That's what I said about uh, getting familiar with a jhana. When, when we take the time to marinate and master it, it's like really, I used to say to people, it's like knowing the library at Guy House. I use that example because I spent so many hours in there doing interviews. But it's like you can put your head in the room and say, yeah, it's a library. It's got books in it. And then close the door. Or you can really know every, every square inch. And it's a big room, and it's got lots of complexity, and there's this little uh, bit on the carpet here, and there's this little angle where the windows meet the wall, and there's this bit of the bookcase there that's chipped or, or whatever. You can really, really know a place, a, a territory or not. So we want to know the whole range. We want to be comfortable, actually. This is more what I wanted to say. We want to be comfortable with that whole range and enjoy that whole range all of it, and, and by so we need to get to a place where the whole range is really comfortable for us and enjoyable, and we know and feel its value of the whole range. Every, every place on that range, we want to feel like, I love this, I love this. Um, it's like asking a musician or a chef or someone who's really into something, like what's your favorite um, food? or what's your favorite piece of music? They're, someone who's really into something is not gonna give you one answer. They're gonna be like, I can't, I can't. They're gonna give you like, okay, I can narrow it down to 10 or something. 
it's the same thing with like the bandwidth of 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 bandwidths of 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 happiness it's like oh, i love that but i also love this i love the bubbly but i also love the really serene one and that bit in the middle is pretty nice too um so we really want to be comfortable with the whole range enjoy the whole range know and feel its value and let it do its, this is part of letting it do its work on the being, on the heart, on the soul, and also on the body. Marinating with the sense of loving and enjoying and opening, etc. It does work. Uh, it, it does work on the being. It does work on the heart. So what's of course common for probably any human being is that certain emotions uh, are more more frequently gravitated to, or of the whole emotional spectrum that a human being can have, there's certain ones that a certain personality tends to gravitate towards this kind of thing, and tends maybe, relatively speaking, to avoid more of the other ones. So some people very common uh, gravitate towards, you know, a subtle kind of, um, well, whatever it is, it could be anything. But oftentimes, uh, for example, one might find that avoiding the really bubbly happiness. It's just not, it's part, so we're now talking about psychology and what's an energetic makeup. What's, what's my uh, propensity, my habit of my psychology? And part of the power of jhana practice is, is again, is to open all that up and really have the whole thing available to us. And that's part, if you ask me, what does it mean to be a free human being? Part of it, to me, means having the whole range. Having the whole range, the whole playground, the whole... Uh, delicious range, including the really difficult. I can experience really hard grief and, and, and grieve with the world. And I can experience this incredibly bubbly, uh, giggling laughter-like thing. And there's no either-or. There's an either-or in the same moment, but, but one is free and one's not um, scared of any of that or holding back. One's letting all that range work on the heart, work on the soul, work on the beings. It ends up being wide, having, having that range and that freedom. So that was one thing. Yeah, so the question is, is that also true with PT? That's <sighs> a good question. I don't know. I would... <laughs> I think I would be, as a teacher, I would be less insistent about that with the PT than with the happiness, because I'm not sure um, if, you know, experiencing, let's say, the really intense, let's turn it around. What I'm not sure about, what, what I am sure about is experiencing subtle PT, going a little back to Nick's question, that that's important for everyone that one needs to actually be able to even notice it and tune to it and be able to enjoy it. Why? Because I don't want to be always having really super strong and then not be able to notice something that's more subtle, not be able to tune to it and, and kind of, you know, uh, turn my nose up at it because that's that same kind of negative, it's not good enough thing. So the subtle end of PT, I would say everyone needs to. With the stronger end, I'm just not sure, Lauren. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I feel less inclined to insist on that. I don't know, but it may be, it may be that that too, I think it's a personal thing. I think, <laughs> so this is just my opinion now. I, 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 if I step back from that particular question, and again, I think about human freedom, etc., and what it means to be liberated, 
I do feel, and I think I've said it in here on this retreat just very briefly, I do feel that sometimes certain people may be holding their energy in or holding it back habitually so that they're kind of a little bit not allowing things to build up and and oftentimes they don't even know that it's just so familiar as a kind of psychological energetics so i'm not just talking about in meditation i'm talking about in the whole life so that for them to really open and surrender or really even to have a lot of energy it's like it's just a territory that they don't go towards or they don't allow happen they don't know that they're not allowing it by this subtle holding it's very very subtle how that can get blocked and sometimes for some people i feel like um, and again, I mentioned someone who's actually convinced that what she needs is to focus more. My opinion is actually what she needs is to learn to learn to let energy build and to open it more. Does that need mean that she needs the super intense PT? I, I don't know, but it seems to me psychologically, knowing her over some years, that that's actually something that you know. But I would feel a bit tentative about saying that about the PT in general, or f- like for everyone, or or in terms of the PT. So. Does this make sense? So I don't. I, for me, that that with the with the with the intense end of the PT, I think it would be more an individual question for me as a teacher, you know. And together we would kind of sense it. and and the, you know for these kinds of things, it's also a matter of like, is it the right time to even bring this up with a student? Um, or at the moment, is it like, well, there's nothing they're going to be able to do with it anyway, and it's probably only going to bring self. Ju- you know, there's all kinds of factors involved. And also what they want, because at the end of the day, it's what they want. And it's also their vision of awakening, you know. So if, if, a, if a view and vision of awakening is of a sort of, like, actually what awakened people look like and what they act like is very, very even and equanimous, and they don't uh, show big eruptions of emotion, and they don't kind of experience those, but they're sort of more m- mature. If one has that whole view, and again, it can be semi-conscious, it can be a teaching that's verbally delivered, or just one has, I've just seen that over and over, whoever the I is, in the Buddhist world with people who are supposed to be respected. So I assume that's how a seasoned practitioner uh, you know, comports themselves, and that's their range, etc. So, if a person is actually that's their view of awakening, um, then that and it's sort of no, that's what I want. I want to be like that. It's up to them. You know, it's their life and their their emotions and their body. It's not up to me to unless they really say to me, which is very rare, for a student to say to me, you know, w- w- tell me everything you think or what do you want or or I've only had w- one one person who, who who said that to me. I think. Robert. It's very, very rare. Um, So, which I hope you still don't regret. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's also you have to respect, as a teacher, you have to respect people's choices and and their views. You know, in talks, this is a way longer answer than you wanted, but in Dharma talks, I do find myself kind of shaking up those whole views. You know, like, is, is that what awakening is? Is that, are you unconsciously thinking of it look like this, you know? But um, one-to-one, as a teacher, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I tend to be very unpushy and very much like, what does this person want? What's the right timing? Um, you know, what are they asking for? That, you know, a talk to me is a different thing, especially, as I say, when it goes out on the internet. I, I feel like I have a different responsibility when something's being recorded. Because even you're asking the question now, but I'm answering it to 
as I said, people I don't even, I'm answering you, but I'm answering people I don't know. So, does that make sense, or have I just complicated and sort of made a bomb somewhere? Um, so, I think it's really important. I don't actually know the answer, or I, I feel unsure with regard to the PT, but with the happiness, yeah, I think I would a little bit more insist on that in this way of teaching the jhanas. Again, if I think of the jhanas as just all I'm doing is getting more and more concentrated, more and more able to hold my mind, then none of this matters. You know, it's just a, it's just a matter of like, okay, as you do that, you'll notice that you go through these different stages, but basically what's most important is, are you thinking, are you not thinking, and how steadily can you hold your mind on an object? But to me, that's not, again, we're back to large framework and how that, um, the implications that has for, uh, you know, for what, what I'm doing. Is that okay? Yeah, okay. Well, thank you for asking that. Um, okay, okay, so the um, second thing I wanted to say was um, back to the effort thing. So, you know, as we do all this, I said the effort question never goes away. It only gets more subtle, if anything, but it's never something that we totally, we should never be totally abandoning. And we need to be willing to overshoot, both overshoot the effort at times and undershoot. Um, overshoot and undershoot the mark of, of, uh, of, of right effort at any moment. I need to be willing to do that and taste that and, and recognize what it feels like. Oh, when I really overshoot, I get a you know headache in between my eyes and I, you know, whatever it is. And when I undershoot, I fall asleep or, you know, those are really extreme. But even with the subtle overshooting and undershooting, I really need to get a sense, uh, recognize, oh, that's what that feels like. And to do that, I have to be willing. I have to be willing to actually, let's try a bit more or let's try a bit less, whatever my habit is. So we're back to this question of inertia. Remember we were talking about inertia in the first couple of days? Back to, do I have inertia with effort levels? And, and the opposite of inertia is, is uh, you know, what? Fluidity, malleability, ease of movement. Am I willing to just slide that effort up, up and down and play with it? And say, oh yeah, too much. Oh yeah, not enough. Whatever, in this moment. Um, so, you know, inertia creeps in certainly to our pr meditation practice, certainly to our jhana practice, and, and actually to our, to our lives in all kinds of ways. So, one, one ongoing inquiry is, where is there inertia? Where might there be inertia for me? Um, but that's part of developing the skill and the art with, with effort levels. And then, as we said, we're playing with the intensity of the effort, um, up and down the intensity, the delicacy, all that. It, remember, intensity of probing, but also intensity of opening. We don't tend to think of opening or abandoning and surrendering as being something that one can do intensely or maybe better, radically is a better word. Um, so we really want to get the feel for, the again, the whole spectrum on those dimmer switches of intensity um, and get the feel for being able to play with, th they're, they're up to us. Uh, it's deliberate, we can, we can change that, that fader switch. Yeah. So that was the second thing. The third thing um, occurred to me, um, here's a question. And again, it's one of these things that may not apply now, but it may apply now. But the next time that you feel I just want to 
um, qualify the thing I said about Rob. <laughs> um, many times people have asked me in a certain moment or with regard to a certain issue or a certain thing they're working on, um, but my, my memory is you just said that more, more universally. Um, but many times people will say, well, I'm working with this image, wh you know, what do you see or what do you, you know, think is helpful? So just Okay. <coughs> is it tea time? Um, no, just kidding. Um, so the, the third thing, this may or may not be relevant now. It, it doesn't matter, but I, I would really, it's something you can play with, uh, a little game that I think might be really, really fruitful um, as a kind of mental exercise or a kind of thought experiment or something. Uh, if you, okay, it's got a few parts to it. If you entertain the idea, so just it, the first part of this thought, this game is you entertain the idea that whatever is, um, uh, whatever your mind uh, is kind of snagged on, if your mind is snagged on something at a certain time, if it's um, circling around something, some issue, or snagged on some issue, or if it feels like it's being held back by something, either a little bit, like really subtly, or quite a lot, um, or dragged somewhere by something, little or, or in a large way, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of less strong way. Um, I can't read what I've written here. Um, it doesn't matter, I know what I want to say. So, um, what if you entertain the idea that actually that issue and its effect on you actually has as its real root, its real origin, a hindrance? It's not about what I think it is, but no matter how, so it's just a game. <laughs> she knows me too well. Um, it's I actually entertain a, con a concept first, this concept, that actually hindrances are more originary. They origin, they're, they're the origins of things that, that we then later don't recognize as hindrances. They're like seedlings that sprout, and then we have a tree, and we see a tree, and we don't recognize the seed. Um... So this is related to you know what I said. If if we're not careful, hindrances become papancha, right? Well, we said papancha is the opposite of samadhi, like completely, right? Did we all agree on that? Yeah, it's completely the opposite of samadhi. This kind of I'm, I'm circling around a, a, an issue or whatever. Sometimes it can be a very noble issue or, or whatever. So I'm not insisting every time we're thinking about something or every time we're upset, but we're just we're just playing a game here, like a, a thought game. No matter how noble the issue, how important it seems, how important to my soul, etc., etc., I just play with that view. Maybe the true origin of this thing is a hindrance. And what has happened is that hindrance has not been recognized as a hindrance, and it's been allowed to grow up and become a, 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 a poisonous papancha tree. Because without a lot of care and practice, that's what happens with hindrances. 
That's what they do. And they can see, this is part of why I said, don't believe, you, we get to a place where we don't believe the hindrance. It can seem so convincing, so convincing. And even like being really upset about this or that political issue, sometimes what's happening there is, a, is aversion. A part of us is, yeah, obviously really cares about this. And sometimes it's just our aversion is just hooking into this particular issue. And it can all sound, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's actually a mixed, at times mixed, at times it's more one or more the other, sometimes. Uh, can I just finish and then one second? Yeah. Um, so we want to encourage the quietening of papancha because papancha is the opposite and the papancha prevents samadhi. Where there's papancha, there's no samadhi. Where there's samadhi, there's no papancha. They cannot coexist. Can we, what we're doing here is if we play this little game is we're kind of tracing back the papancha through the aid of a certain uh, entertaining a certain conceptual possibility that it might have a hindrance as its root and tracing it back to its hindrance um, and then we can work on it as a hindrance so it may not feel relevant at all now but just it might be it might actually turn out to be really really helpful as an exercise one of the people I studied uh, one of the teachers I studied jhana practice with that was their main teaching on jhana practice. This is really the point of jhana and samadhi. So obviously I've, I've talked about it, but I want to kind of emphasize it more now. I don't agree, or it doesn't appeal to me that that would be the main thing, but it's hugely powerful. And there are teachers out there, and you may well encounter them, that this is the main thing that we're doing. So this is the main thing that we want to watch out for. Um, papancha, Relating that to hindrances, dealing with the hindrances allows the samadhi. That's actually the most important thing. And that's, I won't, this is that person's teaching, but I, I actually, I feel it, it was valuable. It's a very valuable teaching. Okay. Um, so just a game, just very light, play with it. You're not signing up to, I believe this idea forever about all emotions and I can never change my mind or anything. It's just a, you're just entertaining a certain concept and seeing what happens for five minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. Did Kirsten, was that your question? Yeah. Uh, yeah, why don't we do, yeah, thank you, yeah, please. I keep it very short. I started to do this a little bit, and then sometimes I'm not clear what the hindrance is exactly. It might be a mixture, and then I might get lost a little bit in this. Yeah. So then I might go to restlessness. You know, I just want to know how accurate it is then, or how important an accuracy of the hindrance is then. Yeah, to thank define you. The hindrance. Yeah, that's really important. It was probably in what I just jotted that very briefly before coming in, so it was probably, um, what I remember now is I'd written, or more than one hindrance, because what we often get is multiple hindrance attacks. And so, yeah, it can be, um, in fact, maybe usually hindrances come in, in gangs, you know, um, so it's probably more than one, and that's fine. And, and maybe you can split them or whatever, or maybe even just thinking of that way, just see what helps. I you mean, know. sometimes just the notion it's a hindrance, or hindrances already that's what I mean. Sometimes the, the, the precision of the identification 
is not important. It's just it's just the, no, the, the as I said, playing with a certain framework and actually reframing. Oh, maybe this is a hindrance, and I don't even know what the hindrance is. It doesn't matter. Just that can be enough. Other times it might be no. I need to get clearer what the hindrance is. But I think the power is more in the general conception here, rather than identifying, um, or rather that has a lot of power. You'll have you'll have to see in each instance. Yeah, but I don't think in every instance it's necessary to identify. And many times, many instances, there will be multiple hindrances going on, and uh, you know, two ganging up. As, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have the mic, Nicole? I have the mic. Okay. Um, yes. Okay. Let's try and be quick. But yeah. Um, <coughs> I've been playing, I think, this game a bit with the whole retreat, and it's been really helpful until yesterday when I fell down a hindrance cliff, and um, and then I just, when I was in it, just got so angry at the question, and um, ultimately, I think it was a self-doubt hindrance cliff that I fell down. Um, but I had to really take some time before I could play the game without it sort of working myself up even more. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering around like timing of the game or in this context, because I know I've worked with you with emotion in di very different ways, and yeah. I brought in some of that, which helped. But yeah. when do you know? I mean, maybe the answer is you know if it's <laughs> making it worse. Like, um, when do you... When do you go, okay, stop playing that game and do something yeah, else? Yeah, thank you. That's really important. Again, so a few things there just to draw out what's really in your question anyway. Again, everything, what I just said is, again, what I said on the opening and whenever, it's all it, how we're working with emotions on this retreat is in a much larger context for me of you know going towards, opening, working in skillful ways, soul-making with emotions, you know, um, and that, that feels really, really important. So partly for you, um, or for anyone, just knowing that as well, putting it in that larger context, it reminds something in the being. So just that might be enough, you know. Um, because I think if, the, if, let's say, if our soul feels like it's getting squashed into a box, it's, it's going to kick up a fuss, and it should, you know, absolutely should. Um, does that make sense? So, so sometimes it might be enough just to remind myself of what, what, what bigger vision I have, you have, in with regard to human emotional life, you know, and th there's we're not talking about it much at all on this retreat, and I explained all that, but um, a, a different retreat, you know, I've done retreats where the primary thing is working with emotions in certain ways, and it's, but it's vast emotions. So if I if I tell my soul it's vast, this is just what it's just a game we're playing now, you know, that might help in itself. But even then, it might be that it's not the right time. So always the question is, what helps? How much time does it take to recognize this is really not, I, I don't know, you know. Um, but you get a sense, especially with it, this is very common. Um, this, is very, this is very common sort of discernment that one needs to make around emotions in any kind of Dharma practice. It's like, I choose a certain way of working with it. And then after a while, I have to ask myself, is this really helping or is this not helping? And if it's not helping, but I don't know how long that while is, but certainly some, certainly some minutes, you know. Um, and, uh, but after a while, if it's not, then I have to come out and do something else, you know. If it's just a matter of cooling off, you know, it might then be that the hindrance is just abated, or it might be that in the cooling off period, I've s somehow even subconsciously remembered the big, the bigger picture of, of, of emotions. Um, I think the point more is that 
kind of what I want to convey is, um, are we willing at, again, do we have the freedom to view emotions that way sometimes? Do I have a freedom of a range of view and I'm not afraid? Because some people get very afraid of certain emotions and some people get very afraid of letting certain emotions go quiet. You know, do I have no fear on either side? Do I have freedom and skill on either side? That's kind of where we want to get to eventually. And then also wisdom, know, just knowing that, well, sometimes um, an emotion can actually be a hindrance or it's most helpfully viewed that way in origin and that's how we need to r relate to it. So the thing I wanted to communicate is sometimes it's just we're so in what we're in at any time that it just doesn't occur to us to, to think that this could be a hindrance. Um, we're so used to looking at emotions other ways. So it's more a, a big view thing. Um, and then there might be there's a periods of time or periods of practice where you're much more leaning into a certain relationship with things um, like emotions and then other periods where we're much different relationship. But if I think back, you know, to long retreat times and um, this isn't even for negative emotions, it's like it's beautiful emotions. I remember uh, two instances at Guy House and one was a one was a sort of mo mo short-lived thing and the other was a more general realization. So the more short-lived thing was, uh, I can't even put it in a context, but I was, I, it was probably that I was doing samadhi practice for a, a stretch. And I, I just either remembered by heart a Mary Oliver poem about an owl and I can't, I can't remember the context, but, but somehow in, in kind of, I went for a walk because I was reciting that to myself and was really touched by the, deeply touched by the beauty of it. And had kind of realized, my soul needs that. You know, my soul needs that, in that moment, that particular poem, but also just, not, not just, it's weird, not just um, P.T. and Sukkur and, and <laughs> it's, it's strange. We have this banquet here that we're talking about, but actually, I think the soul is richer than that. You know, so that that's one thing. Um, but you know, then I gave. It was also. It was also. I remember near the beginning of retreat. So there was still a question for me. Like, okay, was that restlessness just settling into this retreat? I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But I can also see that more generally. It's like if I was only ever. If you asked me, would you only ever want to experience piti, sukha, peacefulness, stillness, and all all the eight jhanas, and that was your whole emotional range? I would say no. I, I wouldn't like that. I would like the whole range, please. Thank you very much. Um, including, like I said, including the grief, including even anger and, and all that. To me, it's part of, this is more a soul-making thing, but to, to me, so that was more a moment. I was still left, uh, I mean, it all settled down, but I was still left afterwards wondering, hmm, I wonder if that was just not quite settled yet on the retreat. It was like day four of a long retreat or something. I can't remember, but um, anyway, that was a question. The other thing, and I haven't mentioned this yet, is that for me, I, th I can't remember exactly, but I, I was exploring, you know, again, for a long time, really, really marinating and making my intention very clear on, I can't remember how many genres, but let's say the first four, like that was my territory that I was really, and I was on a long retreat, and at a certain point, I realized, wonderful as they are, I'm, actu I'm actually missing something more mystical. So that they're, Lovely experiences, and as we'll talk tomorrow about the third jhana, hopefully, there is, the, you know, definitely the beginnings of a mystical sense, a, a sense of sacredness. But, 
you can al also very much practice those jhanas and not really have much sense at all of the, the a mystical sense. And they're not, I would say, again, primary. So even if you're, like for me, my tendency is very much, my yearning is very much towards the mystical, but they're not really that primary in them. And I know lots of people that practice those f first four jhanas without any mystical sense. You know, and again, that goes in, it's related to the whole big conceptual framework. What are we doing here? What's important, etc. But I realize for me, I feel something missing here. It w again, it was in the context of a long solo retreat, and I knew that I had to keep my intention steady. We're back to that question about keeping. So I don't know, I think recognizing it was very helpful. Um, I don't, it didn't kind of, I didn't like then change what practices were, you know, but I can't remember what I did, but it wasn't, whatever I did uh, worked, but it wasn't a kind of radical shift or change of direction. It was maybe just including something at the sides a bit more or something like that, but um, again, that's probably a much longer answer than you wanted, but um, does that make sense, what I just said? Yeah, so, um, okay, Marco, this has to be the last one, please. <laughs> oh, thumbs up, good, okay. <coughs> um, Uh, drop into maybe yeah maybe it was recognizing that you know I only I only missed the mystical because I knew the mystical and and you you know if maybe were it something that I'd never experienced outside I wouldn't I would maybe have a have a sense let's say I I was a soul that wanted the mystical but I hadn't experienced the mystical and then I was four giants well these are great maybe I would have a vague sense of I'm missing something wonderful as this is, you know, absolutely wonderful as this is, I'm still missing something. Maybe I would have had that sense, but not quite known what it was I was missing. I don't know, but back then I'd had quite a lot of different, all kinds of things, and I think a part of me, yeah, in the context, was m but recognizing, yeah, I can I can go back to that. It doesn't, I'm not signing up to this sort of forever. I will stay in the four jhanas as long as I can and do nothing else. I, that was never in my I never signed up to that. So maybe that, yeah, that larger context and a larger sense of possibility was help, helped, maybe. Maybe, yeah. I, th I probably did, yeah. Okay, we need to end. So let's have a bit of quiet together, please. <coughs>
Thank you, everybody. And um, time for tea. And then uh, I guess Zohar and Lauren will have to switch. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I'm going to start my interviews at 7. Okay. Is there any, anything else to announce? No? Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.